Good morning, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Topic Podcast. Brett and I have another great episode for you today, so stay tuned. But before we get into that, just another reminder that we're carrying on with our current recording situation, which is essentially some shorter stories recorded by Brett and myself separately and stitched together to make a great quick-paced episode. I'm sure you missed the normal banter, but fear not, it will be returning in a few more weeks. Anyway, on to the episode. So, we've touched on some medical stories in a few other episodes before, but normally those have been centered around some of the more darker or old-school practices of years gone. This time, I thought we'd take a bit more of a positive look into the medical world and talk about some medical marvels that changed the way humankind did things forever. For my segment, I thought I'd talk about one of the most unique surgical marvels, and that is the world's first heart transplant. Reason being, as a lot of our fellow South African listeners might know, it happened on our own local soil. Now let's start by talking about the surgeon himself, Dr. Christian Barnard. Dr. Barnard was born in 1922 and passed away in, in 2001. He was a South African man, obviously, born in Beaufort West in the Western Cape. His father was a minister of the Dutch Reformed Church, and he had four brothers, one of which succumbed to an unknown heart disease at only three years old. Now, after finishing school in Beaufort West, he went to further his education and follow his passion for medicine at UCT, or the University of Cape Town. Even today, UCT is one of the leading medical education institutions in South Africa. After only five years, he obtained his bachelor's in surgery and went off to start his residency at Grotescure Hospital. He was just a general practitioner during his residency, but moved on to a more senior role as a resident medical officer soon after. He went on to complete his master's and then doctorate degrees in 1953. Thereafter, he began taking more of an interest in surgery as time went on. Investigating and diagnosing intestinal problems in dogs, surprisingly enough, and actually made quite a few breakthroughs in understanding subcanine diseases and how to prevent them. He learnt and published various techniques here, which other doctors and surgeons expanded on and applied to intestinal diseases found in human children, saving the lives of quite a few babies. Around this time, a man by the name of Owen Wangenstein at the University of Minnesota in the US contacted the hospital Chris Barnard worked at in hopes to find a good new student after a pleasant experience he had with another surgical student at his university who hailed from the same hospital Chris did. And thus, Chris Barnard went to the US and received a two-year scholarship to train under Owen Wangenstein. Now, although Chris started with intestinal work, much like before, he wanted to expand into new territory and thus began his journey into heart surgery. He received another master's and PhD qualifications here and was having great success in this field. In 1958, he returned to South Africa, where he was appointed as the head of experimental surgery in the same hospital he used to work at. It's quite a scary sounding title, to be honest. He also became the head of cardiothoracic surgery at the teaching hospitals of UCT. One of his brothers actually followed in his footsteps and soon became his right-hand man during operations. Alright, we're all caught up on Chris, so let's talk about the transplant. A man by the name of Louis Washkansky, who was 54 years of age, was suffering from an incurable heart disease. Things did not look good for Louis, and he didn't have much longer before he would succumb to total heart failure. 
Chris and his colleagues had been working away at the possibilities of heart transplants and researching the matter in depth at the time, and offered Louis the chance to be the world's first recipient of a new heart. Now Louis agreed to this, as the doctors assured him there would be an 80% chance success rate. And to be honest, I think I'd probably do the same. Things did look bleak for Louis if he didn't anyway. Now apparently this is actually a fairly contentious moment in this case. It's believed that the odds of success at the time were actually far lower than 80%. But based on the knowledge that Louis had at the time, he agreed to it. All that was left now was to wait for a donor. In December 1967, a 25-year-old woman by the name of Denise Darvall was walking along the streets with her mother. But they were sadly struck by a drunk driver. They were of course rushed to hospital, but unfortunately the mother did not make it and died on the scene. Denise, on the other hand, did survive the crash. However, Denise had a serious head injury and was, for want of a better phrase, brain dead, with no chance of recovery at all. The distraught father of Denise agreed to have his daughter's heart used in the transplant, and through his tears, said that if they can't save his daughter, they must save this man. It's what Denise would have wanted. Now I did rush through this part of it, but it is an incredibly tragic story and not one to be easily forgotten. With Denise's heart in tow, a surgery could begin. The doctor started by taking bacterial swabs of Louis's body at various areas to get a good grasp of his bacterial biome. This would help get a head start on the right antibiotics to administer him after the operation. The operation then commenced. Now I won't go into the specifics of it because I'm not a medical aficionado and I don't want to say the wrong thing, but basically the operation was a success, to varying degrees. Louis managed to survive the operation and Denise's heart was functioning and pumping blood inside of him just as planned. It was a great outcome and the world's first transplant was complete. Unfortunately however, and this is a part of the story that often gets left out, Louis did die 18 days later from pneumonia due to his weakened immune system and also the fact that he had other underlying issues such as diabetes. But the operation is still widely considered to be a success at least to medical professionals around the world, due to the fact that the heart was pumping on its own for 18 days. From this operation, techniques and medical practices were improved. Better medicines came out to improve the rate of acceptance of foreign hearts into patients. And now heart transplants are a completely viable operation to this day. Now this is pretty cool stuff. Chris, um, well, he carried on with his heart experimentations and at one point attempted to use hearts of chimps and baboons in people because of the lack of human donors. But let's not go into that. That's a whole animal rights thing I don't want to touch on right now. Now I must say, all in all, this is some amazing stuff in the story. I think that the winner of the story was not only humans everywhere, but also Denise, whose heart paved the way to saving thousands upon thousands of people around the world. That's it. That's the story of Chris Barnard and the world's first heart transplant. Thank you for joining, and I hope you learned something if you didn't know already. I know us as South Africans touched on this a bit at school, actually. At least I did in biology. But I never really, at least couldn't really remember the full story. Now that I'm a bit older, I'm actually amazed at this whole process. I think it is very cool, and and I mean, what an amazing accomplishment for South Africa. Alright, so that's all from me today, guys. Thanks for listening. And Brett, on to you. Let's hear about your story.
We live in a world where, for the most part, we seem to have things figured out. I'm not talking about curing the world, but more in a sense of a direction. We know more now about the human body than ever before, but there are still huge leaps needed to take it a step further. Now, think back to a time where sickness equaled death. A time where the human body was a machine with no manual and definitely no spare parts. I don't have kids, but the thought of seeing your little one not well and having no way of curing them or even knowing what is wrong is a terrifying thought. This was the case pre-1920s. Life was hard for kids born with diabetes. With extremely high blood sugar levels, the kids often died at young ages. Doctors would put patients onto strict diets of something as little as 450 calories a day just to buy them a few more years. This, however, wasn't sustainable. If the diabetes didn't kill them, starvation did. In January 1922, a dying boy named Leonard Thompson became the first to test the new miracle serum. As he lay comatose on his bed with his parents nearby, the doctors administered the first dose. Within 24 hours, his blood sugar levels went to near normal, and a boy who was thought to be dying was now cured. From there, word spread like wildfire, and by 1923, a new, more refined version was available. Parents watched in awe as doctors walked into the wards, administering the drug one by one, watching as the kids regained consciousness. All of this work was thanks to Frederick Banting, Charles H. Best, and J.J.R. McLeod. Together, they were able to identify the lack of insulin with diabetic patients, and by the use of a few animal buddies, were able to extract the insulin from their pancreases. Eventually, James Collip, a biochemist, joined the crew and using his expertise was able to purify it to the point where it was safe for humans. This was the breakthrough they needed. And by October 1923, McLeod and Banting were awarded the Nobel Peace Prize for their life-saving discovery. Now I'm lucky enough to be married to a professional drug dealer. And chatting to her about this subject really opened my eyes to the world of pharmaceuticals and things like insulin. What was interesting to me though was the fact that most things we see and hear about on a daily basis are discovered by convenience. What do I mean by that, you may be asking? Well, why not use the side effect of one medicine to tackle a whole other issue? For example, some antihistamines make you drowsy. Now, you don't have to look too far to find the key ingredients for a sleeping pill. We're lucky to have people searching for cures to even the smallest of problems. And at the end of the day, one small discovery could lead to curing the whole world. So that is it for us this week. Another short, sweet little episode. And it really was one that was kind of sparked by the fact that, you know, we kind of have to be proud of something being South Africans um, with the heart transplant and all that. And I've just always loved that story of basically the discovery of insulin and just kind of the feeling that comes with the fact of imagine if that was you with your kid sitting in the hospital And these doctors just walk in and start administering this serum, this drug that just fixes everything. It's it's incredible. It's fantastic. And these medical marvels are things that we need to appreciate and continue to strive for in every way possible. We have so much still to learn and hopefully we don't stop kind of progressing to the future and solving what we can. But yeah, that is it for us this week, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, you know the drill. If you want to get hold of us, you can catch us on all major social media platforms at Otopi Podcast. Check us out on our website, otopipodcast.com, and you can email us 
community at otopodcast.com. You can also check us out on Podchaser. Uh, all our episodes are up there. Give us a review. Give us a rating. It really does help. But we'll see you again next week. Stay fresh. Bye. Bye.